to John 8, verse 34. There's a lot of things we can do by way of explanation, but I just want to take the words at face value. Let me remind you of when we had a study on John 8. You remember the key is that all through the chapter, it begins with the story of the adulterous woman, and the climax of the story is when Jesus says, He that is without sin, throw the first stone. And that theme of he that is without sin is repeated four times. It's hammered into our consciousness four times through the eighth chapter of John. Okay, he keeps bringing us back again to this concept that sin is all pervasive. Paul obviously picks this up and he's, he refers to it in the first verse of Romans 2. He says, who are you, O oh man, who judge? Do you not know that you're guilty of the very things that you judge others of? He picks it up in Romans 7.18 where he says, In my flesh there is nothing good living. There's nothing good that dwells in my flesh. Amen? Romans 3, he also mentions it. Jesus is here in John 8 and he's just, he's just said something. And I want us to get the timeline. I've said this before, but I'm going to repeat the timeline of how he says, how he responds to the people who are receiving the word of God. First of all, in John 8, he's just been speaking to them that they're going to believe in him and that they're going to know he was sent by the Father when they lift him up. He's telling them that somehow when they, when they see a man who is willing to surrender and yield, not by coercion, but by the power of love, to something as awful as crucifixion, they're going to know that he does nothing of his own initiative but only as the Father directs, and they're going to believe that He is the Messiah. So He says that, and then He goes right in and says, He's in verse 30, He says, As He spoke these things, many came to believe in Him. He said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own initiative. Because there's a lot of great plans, and a lot of great sermons, and there's a lot of great programs that man can invent of his own initiative, but crucifixion is not one of them. Amen? When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I am He. And that I do nothing of my own initiative. He's already said, if you don't believe that I am He, then you're going to die in your sins. But you're not going to be able to come to that full faith until you see the crucifixion. And you know that something has taken hold of this man's life that is not human planning, human strategies. Amen? The same is true of the body of Christ. The world that is looking for Jesus is going to know that the real church has been born and is coming forth when they see a church willing to embrace the cross, willing to accept the slander, the malignment, the lies, the ridicule, the persecution. When they see a church that doesn't hide from that, that doesn't cater to the flesh and to sin, but that embraces the consequences of truth, namely a cross. When they see that church, they're going to know that it's the real thing, that the genuine article is confronting them with a decision. That's what they knew when they saw Jesus crucified. And he, said, and he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone for I always do the things that He tells me, or that is pleasing to Him. So when He's, when he's on the cross, He says, you're going to know that I'm sent by the Father, that I do nothing of my own initiative, 
and that something is indwelling me, that he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone. The world is not going to be able to see the fullness of the indwelling of the Spirit, of the Father possessing us, until we're put under the kind of scrutiny of the cross that he's speaking of. You're going to know two things. One, that I do nothing of my own initiative. And two, that I'm not alone. That there is an indwelling power. That there is a, a, an evidence of the Spirit that goes beyond any sort of superficiality. Amen. I am not left alone. The Father is with me. And the Spirit that filled Jesus was with Him all the way to the end. You remember when He prayed immediately the Spirit sent angels and would minister to Him while He was in the garden. Amen. All the way there. He has not... He has not become the dried leaf in the wind. He's carrying his cross, a bloodied mess, a beaten pulp. He's trudging up Golgotha, and the women are lining the streets just weeping and making a commotion, as we all would. And he turns to them and he says, do not weep for me. Amen. If they do this when the tree is wet, what will they do when the tree is dry? God was still with him all the way. He's lifted up on the cross. The agony is real. The pain, it's complete. The reduction is total. Amen. But the Spirit is there. He has not left me alone. Amen. And there's this, surely this is the Son of God. The revelation of Messiah comes to the centurion who watches guard. When he says, this is something that cannot be done by man's own initiative. Amen. Surely this was the Son of God. He has not left him alone. Amen. And then, of course, when Jesus gives up his spirit, when he gives up his ghost, what happens? He cries out with a loud voice and he says, Eloi, Eloi, Lamak Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you left me alone? Amen. Amen. When he's dying, he has to give up the spirit. He has to give up. That eternal spirit that dwells in. Amen. Because God cannot die. A spirit cannot die. Amen. So the God that indwelt him had to take flight. And the flesh screamed out at that moment of agony. Amen. But the last thing he tells his disciples is go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey all things I have commanded you. And lo... I am with you always, even to the end of the time. Amen? Somehow he's saying, if you'll be able to walk in obedience, God is going to be able to walk with you. And that's exactly what he's saying here, is it not? And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Do you understand? He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Make disciples, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you, and I will not leave you alone. Jesus did not feel alone because he was submitting to a will, a word, a destiny, a purpose outside of his own strategies. He was submitting to, nevertheless, your will be done. In that obedience, God does not leave us. In that faithfulness to obey he does not leave us alone. He sticks with us. Lo, He is with us always, even to the end of the age. Amen. It's the last thing He said on this earth. 
Isn't that wonderful? Amen. He had been left alone for that split second. He had tasted the isolation from grace and faith and power. That he tasted death for us. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So that if we'll walk in like obedience, we need not be left alone. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And that belief is obviously faith, right? Now, as soon as somebody hears the word of God and begins to believe it, that is the moment when salvation begins. It is not the moment when salvation is completed, but it is the moment when salvation begins. And the question is, will they continue to do all things whatsoever he has commanded? If so, that salvation and that God will stay with them always, even to the end of the age. Or will they begin to backtrack and lose what they've just gained by faith. They say, when is a baby? A baby. At the moment of conception, at the moment of birth, halfway through, a baby is a baby. As soon as God makes it one, as soon as God brings the raw materials into something that begins to grow toward a destiny. That's the moment a baby is a baby. And that's the same in the spirit. You may not be born again yet, but you're conceived the moment the molecules of potential come together in something that God is doing. And you allow that to keep growing in your heart. And you begin to mature in the womb of the church. From that moment on, you're saved. Now that can be aborted. You say, well, but once he's born, it'll never be aborted. Oh, yes. Even after you're born, a baby can die. Amen. You can be living all the way up until the moment of your birth and you can still die. I'm not talking about can you die or not. Of course you can die. That embryo can die. That tiny little baby. My wife's baby is about the size of my thumb right now. That baby is a baby. Amen. It's all there. It's real. Amen. Just as much as you're a child of God, the moment you start. Amen. The moment you said, oh my goodness, is this the kingdom of God? You know, I think I believe what's being spoken. Something started to be formed. Amen? Something started to come together. And the miracle of life began. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. And I say many came to be saved. So Jesus said to those Jews who had believed in him. Now why does my Bible, why is it specific in the tense? Is grammar important? Jesus won the most clincher argument of the resurrection on grammar. You remember in John 12 when the, when the Sadducees came to him and they had it perfect. They said, oh Lord. <laughs> they said there was a man and he had seven, he had a, a wife and he died before they had kids. And, but he had six other brothers and each one married this poor lady and none of them had kids. And they all died and in heaven and they just know Jesus. I split her seven ways. And, you know. And he goes, mm, you don't know the power of God nor the scriptures. And he makes his argument on grammar. He says, it is written, I am. If it was written, I was, his argument has no water, holds no water. But he says, it is written, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So when the scripture speaks, the 
grammar is important. The tense is important. Amen? So he says, I am the God of Abraham. What if, what if somebody had just written down, I was? Well, you wouldn't do that if you heard him say it, would you? Okay. So he says, to those Jews who had believed in him, have already believed, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So they have believed in him, past tense. If they will continue, then they will be truly disciples of his. And after they've believed, after they've continued, after they've become disciples of his, his, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So he says to people who are believing him in him, okay, good. If you continue in that, and you're really my disciple, then you are really my disciple. So initial belief, it's the beginning. And if you'll keep it up, then you're really his disciple. And once you're really his disciple, you're going to know the truth. And the truth will make you free. So it begs the question of, what do these real disciples need to be freed from? What do these real disciples who started out with belief, who who've continued with continuance, who've heard the word of God, what, what do they need to be freed from? They're disciples. They're, they don't need to be free. They used to sin. They used to have problems. But now it's different. They're good people now. Isn't that right? No, that's wrong. And you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. And our Bibles kind of let us down here because the tense really is continuous. It could, be, it could be read. And you will be knowing the truth. And the truth will be making you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. And we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The declaration of liberation is absolutely unattractive to someone who doesn't know they're in prison. Why do I want to be free? I'm not enslaved. What, what are you talking about? I don't need that. You've probably encountered people who've responded to the presence of God or to the liberty of the Spirit. Isn't that what Paul says? Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So you say to somebody, look, God wants to bring liberty in your life. Huh? Liberty? Why would I need liberty? I already got that. I'm not enslaved to anybody. Amen. You've got to be dissatisfied with your enslavement before you can reach out and apprehend your deliverance. Amen? So he says, uh, he said, well, we've never been enslaved to anybody. We're Abraham's descendants. You, you don't understand. we got a kind of secret liberty going on from birth. It runs in our blood. Jesus answered them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. So whatever you think is freedom ain't freedom because it didn't come from the son. Whatever you call freedom from sin is a freedom because the only authentic freedom and liberation comes from the Son. There's a kind of liberty from sin that only comes from Jesus. Amen? 
If the Son, that's the differentiation that he makes there. If the Son makes you free, then you're free indeed. I know that a lot of us are not getting where I'm going here. But let's just go back to 34 and say, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Now I want you to go to Romans 6, 16. Romans 6, 16. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin because we are under because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Obedience defines slavery. What are the impulses? What are the powers in your life that you cannot resist obeying? That is your master. You are that slave. You are the slave of that power. You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in what? It's interesting that he says obedience results in righteousness, and he doesn't say that obedience is righteousness. I'm not saying that that's not the case, but it is interesting that he says obedience results in righteousness. Now, what do we understand obedience to be? Obedience is the human efforts at goodness. Is that right? No, that's wrong. Obedience is faith. Obedience is hearing the impossible demands that God asks of us and knowing that we are impotent in our own flesh to accomplish those demands, but nonetheless leaping toward those demands. It's the paralytic getting up when he's never been able to move his leg before. It's the impossible obedience that only can happen when grace is empowered. So that it's not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. When the gift of God, which is the Holy Spirit, begins to move on the waters, begins to move over our lives, and God makes demands on us, when we respond to those demands, that's faith. Faith comes by what? And hearing the word of God, right? So the word of God brings faith. Faith is the correct answer to the word of God. Disobedience is the incorrect answer to the word of God. Do you understand? Faith is not saying, I believe Jesus did it. Faith is saying, I'm coming, Lord, when Jesus calls us, even when we're crippled. Faith is, yes, I can do it. When we've lain there our entire life and known that in our flesh we cannot do it. Whether you speak of the man at the gate beautiful or the man at the pool of Siloam, it's impossible. But he says, your faith made you well, your faith saved you. That's faith. That's obedience to God. Amen? So obedience results in righteousness because faith results in righteousness. The righteousness is not of ourselves, lest we should boast. But it's Christ's righteousness. Now what does that mean? Christ was righteous not because he was a better restrainer of carnality than we were. Christ was righteous authentically because he was infilled with God and he did nothing but what the Father told him to do. Now God is spirit and when that self-same spirit comes into our life and begins to motivate us and we obey, then the result is God's righteousness working through us. That's the story of when he says let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do you understand? It's the righteousness of Christ. 
When we participate, when we obey, when we have faith toward the demands of God, and we work out that impossible work that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in, not of ourselves, but by the gift, by the spirit of power, that it's Christ's righteousness. Amen? In our flesh, we could do nothing. But when God says to do it and we obey it, he gets the credit. That's how obedience results in righteousness. Our obedience, when we obey, suddenly Christ's righteousness is working through us. We're obeying the initiative of the Father that he obeyed. So whenever we speak of righteous in a positive sense, we're speaking of Christ's righteousness. Whenever we speak of righteous in a negative sense, we're speaking of self-righteousness, which is filthy rags. So when he says, be not deceived, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying is, be not deceived. If you're not empowered by this spirit that Jesus submitted his whole life to, you're not going to enter the kingdom of God, which is the same thing as saying, unless you're born again of water and spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say, I won't let you enter. He said, you cannot enter. You cannot take the necessary steps apart from this motivation of the spirit. 1 John 1, verse 8 if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, so we got three scriptures here. Number one, if we sin, we're slaves to sin. If we're slaves to sin, it results in eternal death. And if we say we don't have sin, then the truth is not in us. It looks like a lose-lose solution here. Now, you're gonna, I'm going to have to say that a couple more times, I know. Jesus says, if you commit sin, you're a slave to sin. Paul says in Romans 6, 16, if you're a slave to sin, you're going to end in death. And John says, if you say you don't have sin, then you're lying and the truth ain't in you. So it's lose-lose everywhere you turn. Is that right? If you commit sin. Well, John says, if you say you don't commit sin, you don't have any truth in you. Jesus says, if you do commit sin, you're a slave. And Paul says, well, if you're a slave, go to hell. So how do you answer this? He said, if you commit sin, you're a slave to sin. And you don't commit sin? So there's a condition if we walk, but then there's the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanses us. Well, that kind of ties into what Jesus was saying, that there's something that needs to be cleansed. If we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light. Now what is the light? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and what? A light unto my pathway, right? This is the verdict that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. Everyone who practices evil hates the light because they're fearful that their deeds might be exposed. But everyone who practices truth comes into the light that it may be clearly seen that what he has done, he did because he was a good boy. No, that what he has done was done in God. Amen. It was the righteousness of Christ. It was not him. Okay, so Jesus is saying in John 8, everyone who commits sin, he says... If you continue in my word, continue is key, obviously, then you are truly disciples of mine. 
and you will be knowing the truth and the truth will be making you free. And something can rise up inside of every one of us that says, huh? Once we're really disciples, we don't need to be being made free because we're good people then. And we say, I don't know what you mean because I've already been baptized. I mean, I've been living here in the church for a while. What do I need to be made free of? And to those people, he says, what? Are you kidding yourself? Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And so to those people, they learn, oh God, I committed sin yesterday. I'm a slave to sin. Yes, you are. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. When I'm committing sin, I am a slave to sin. Now, if you say you have no sin, there's your first sin. You lie and do not practice the truth. Amen? Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So am I a slave to sin? If I say yes, then I know I'm ending in eternal death. Romans 6.16 If I say no, then I deny the words of Jesus and John. So what's the solution? He really says it already, doesn't he? There is this presumed condition. There is this reality of sin that we are going to live in. It's all around. All the way from Adam, those germs have lived on. It runs in my blood and I am born diseased. And every time I sin, I fall back under the symptoms of that disease. But there is an antidote. Amen? And that's not a perfect analogy, but I'm going to use it. Everybody knows what an antidote is, don't you? It's when there's a, a horrible disease spreading. Typhoid is spreading. Scientists will, will get together and they'll make up a neutralizer. They'll make up a, a potion or an injection that they will inject into the bodies of those jeopardized by the disease so that when the disease comes to them, there's a counterbalance to that disease. Amen? The antidote to sin is the presumption of continued obedience to the Word of God. Amen? If you take continued obedience to the Word of God out of the equation, by default, everybody is going to hell. Even those who have come to believe in Him and are truly His disciples. You're on your way to hell. If you take out of your life the presumption that God will continue to speak to you. And that in that word is the next step of faith. So he says if we walk, not if we sit, not if we remember 40 years ago when we were in the light. But if we walk in the light. How does that happen? The light shines. It doesn't shine on the place where we stand. It shines on the next step that we must take. And so we step forward. If we walk in the light, where He is, where the Spirit is, as He Himself is in the light, what's the result? We have fellowship with one another. Suddenly, walking in the light equals communication with one another. What is that communication? That is the communication of truth. That is a confrontation of sin. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. There was the disease and there was the antidote. He's no longer a slave. Do you see that? You take that ongoing confrontation, communication, koinonia, fellowship out of the equation. 
You isolate yourself in such a place that the word of God cannot access you. And you have protected yourself from the antidote of continued obedience to the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily. He tells us it's got to be for today twice. He emphasizes that point two times in this short prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. Don't lead us into temptation, but you've also got to deliver us because we're in a constant fight. We're in battle with this sin. Amen. What did he say? You are clean because of what? The word I have spoken to you. Amen. Doesn't Paul speak of the washing of water by the word? You take yourself out of the context where you can hear the word of truth, the word of God. You no longer have fellowship with one another and suddenly the lifeblood of Jesus is ebbed. It's stopped up. It's damned from your life. Having fellowship with one another equals the blood flowing. Every other effort at freedom is a joke. It's self-deception. But if the Son makes you free, then you're free indeed. And He can only make you free where His blood is covering you. And His blood only covers you when you're having fellowship with one another. First John, he says, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. I just told you that the Word was light, so was I wrong? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was God. And the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of what? The two absolutely essential ingredients to salvation. We beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, what? Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth always go hand in hand. Amen. God has deposited grace in the body. Little deposits of truth that took root. Those, those little seedlings that have taken root, they bear fruit. Those fruits are the deposits of grace that I hold in my hand for my brothers and sisters. And as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, when my brother needs it, I dispense that deposit of grace that has been given to me through the truth. Do you understand? Amen. So he says, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. You can say that you have fellowship with God and just keep on sinning and say, well, this is the way everybody is. You lie and do not practice the truth. And all liars shall find their place in the lake which burns with fire. That's hopeless to just go on, well, you know, God understands. I'm in sin, but I, I still have fellowship with God. And what does this mean, fellowship with Him? 
Does that not make me think of John 17, 3? This is eternal life, to know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom He has sent. That is to say, to have fellowship, to have a relationship with the only true God. Not to know about Him, but to know Him. We've talked about that, right? Amen. So this is eternal life. He says, if you say you have this fellowship with God that equals salvation, and yet you walk in darkness, you lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with, and He shifts it from to God, He says, with one another. But it's not really a shift, is it? And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us. These people, myself, you, once we come into this place of intimacy with God, we still have need of cleansing. We still have need of cleansing. If we say that we have no sin, if we, church people, not unbelievers, not sinners, but we, church people, John includes himself. He didn't say, if you say you have no sin. He said, if we say we have no sin, we lie. Amen. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous, amen, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us by the washing of water through the word of all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. He repeats it twice. Does he not? Amen. My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And isn't it something that he keeps hammering into us the righteousness of God as in juxtaposition to the sinfulness of flesh? If we confess our sins, and what does that mean? We turn the Word of God into these little formulas of magic. Take, for example, confession. And I've told you this before. We know that confession is necessary to be relieved of our sins, to be free from our sins, right? But what is confession? Confession is going and telling somebody what you did wrong. Is that true? It is not true. That's a formula. You can stand up at a meeting and say, I can't believe it, but I just did this, I just did that. You're, you're going to sit down and you say, you know what, I just don't feel it. Well, I'm not surprised. Because you never feel it with hocus pocus. What is confession? Whatever we understand about confession of sin, we also must understand about confession of Christ. You remember, the most he talks about confession is when he says, If you confess me before men, then I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. Now, does our meaning of confession, does it really jive with that usage that Jesus is utilizing there? If you confess me before men, then I will also confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But if you deny me, he contrasts confession with denial. That's pretty palatable to our understanding, right? Denial is saying I didn't do it. Confession is saying I did do it. No, denial is certainly saying I didn't do it. But it's more than that. Confession, what is it? We know it's homologeo in the Greek, right? What does homologeo mean? It means to speak the same thing as, and the question I have is the same thing as who? Confession is to speak the same thing as what God is speaking to you. When the Word of God comes to you, and you have already fallen back under those failures of sin and the disease is breaking out in boils of fear and unbelief and 
little abscesses, attitudes, and bitterness, and you're sitting there in the the accoutrements of your your self-protection with the stench of your disease. And God comes by. He has a word for you. Amen. He has a word for you. And that word is always both negative and positive. It's negative to that flesh that has taken over your life again, to that sin nature that is dominating, that is mastering you again. Amen. But it is also positive. In that he gives you concrete steps. He shines his light on the next stepping stone across this chasm. And so when you speak the same thing that God is speaking about you, your sin, your obedience. It's not just saying not what you did wrong. It's speaking it as God sees it. And it's also speaking the positive step of obedience. Amen. It's confessing Him before men. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Amen. When Jesus encountered people who were in sin, He would conclude it by saying, Go and sin no more. And I'm perplexed as a kid, and I still do, at the simplicity of that statement. Now, there's something about it. He repeats it over and over. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. What does it mean? Why did He say more? Why didn't he get into the details of it? Well, there's a couple things about it. One, in all of those circumstances, nothing was hidden from his sight. Nobody was playing a game with him. Amen? It was obvious, at least between them and God, it was absolutely crystal clear what the problem was. Amen? He knew what the sin was, and they knew what he was meaning when he said sin no more. But then it it really does, it gets to the heart of the way God views sin. God does not have a checklist that he's going to review when we get to the gates of heaven. He understands, he knows that sin is death. That the wages of sin is death. Sin is just separating yourself from God. And it's not like you have this wonderful life and you have this wonderful relationship with him and with all all the people in your life. And then you get to heaven and you realize, oh, I forgot about that sin. Sin is death. You're just, you're dying as soon as you start doing it. His objective is to get you to abandon that sin. That's what he wants. He doesn't want your formula. He wants your freedom. He says, what we really need is a change. And we've got to be willing to do whatever that change asks for. Whatever that change demands of us, that's what we've got to be willing to do. So if you can just look at your sin and say, God, what is necessary to go and sin no more. That is what God wants in your life. Very simple. What does repentance mean? You remember when I told you that repentance is not just revulsion? Revulsion makes you back up. Repentance certainly entails revulsion. But it also entails a 180. Amen? Repentance is a 180. Your sin It has become the idol of your life. Even after we try to repent of it, even after we want to give it up, perhaps it's still our little God. The importance, the consuming nature, the perplexity and complexity of this sin. It's just eating us. Oh God, I have it. And what God wants you to do is realize it's nothing. And what he wants you to do is turn around and see him standing behind you 
and go in the opposite direction. When your sin is at your back, when you turn your back on your sin, you betrayed your sin. Amen. You denied its attraction. Amen. And you begin to pursue something in the opposite direction. Amen. Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. What did Paul say? Forgetting those things that are where? That are behind. Amen. You've got to turn your back to yourself. Quit making it such a big deal. It's not. You think, well, what, is that? what does he mean by that? Oh, it's a big enough deal to take in hell. But it's not this complicated, difficult, hard. That idolizes it. It's a big pile of rubbish. Isn't that what Paul said? It's a dunghill. It's nothing. My sin isn't worth anything. I've been a fool to be sitting here over this dunghill. I just don't know if I can let go. I just don't know if I can let go. And the Prince of Peace, amen, the Lord of glory, the God of love is standing behind me. And he's seen my back. Oh, God, forgive me. I'm repenting. I'm going and sinning no more. Amen. So confession is when God looks over your shoulder and says, that's what's keeping you from my will? That's a dunghill! And we say, that's a dunghill. Amen. And he says, and you have got your hands filthy up to the elbow and dung. And we say, and I've got my hands filthy up to the elbow and dung. And he says, but I want to wash you. And we say, wash me. Amen. And he says, and I've got a purpose for your life. And we say, show me. And he says, run in the paths of my commands. And we say, I'm running. That's repentance. That's confession. That's freedom. You cannot be effective in God except when you have the reality of your sin when it's constantly in your mind. It can't be an idol, but it can't be forgotten either. People who have the battle right there fresh in their mind are the most effective people in the kingdom of God. They're the most effective people. They forget not what manner of man they are. Amen. Now what does this mean? Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. God's grace cannot wash us until we're willing to say, you know what? You don't owe me anything. You're forgiven. We can forgive others when we know that God forgives us when we forgive our debtors. Amen. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And that's where he brings in, lead us not into temptation. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in view of God's mercies, offer yourself up as a living sacrifice. You, you cannot offer yourself up as a living sacrifice when God's mercies have slipped out of you. But in view of God's mercies, you can do it. Amen? When you, when your sinfulness, when your sin nature, when it's right there, you're the most effective person for the kingdom of God. Washing, cleansing, rinsing truth. Amen? You look at him, oh God, I need Paul in my life. Peter says, because after all that God's done, 
I may say something in a meeting that's not right. Amen. That doesn't make him less effective. That makes him more in tune, more sensitive, more honoring, amen, of God in each person around him. Simon Peter, toward the beginning of his relationship with Jesus, he goes from being intensely attracted to being horribly ashamed. And something happens that reveals his self-confidence, and it's not important in this context. And the Lord speaks to that self-confidence, and they're out on the boat. And what happens? Peter realizes that he has let down the game. He realizes that he has let his face fall, and he's just lost the job interview. He says, oh God, now he knows. And so Peter, the kind of man that he is, he just sprawls on the floor of this boat, and he says, all right, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinner. Amen. He has known in his heart all along that there are things that he's got to deal with that if Jesus knew about it, doesn't know Jesus does know, this would all be over. Amen. He's been torturing himself in this hiding of the sin in his life. Do you understand? And then circumstance just heat up so hot, it comes to the surface and he loses faith because his faith was in his own righteousness. Do you understand? And he goes, oh God, just get out of my life. I'm done. I'm done trying. I failed the test. Okay, I'll admit it. I'm a sinner. Depart from me for I am a sinner. And Jesus is looking down over Peter. And I know it was joy that rose up in his heart. There's Peter just sprawled at his feet. Oh, God, get out of my boat. I'm going back with Andrew to my dad's nets. Depart from me, for I am a sinner. And I just told you that this is the attitude that makes you most effective for the kingdom of God. Jesus looks down at him and he says, Amen! From now on, I'll make you a fisher of men. This is it, Peter. This revelation that you're not sufficient. This is it. Amen. From now on, from this moment of abject disappointment, amen, in the flesh, God can start using you. Later, when Jesus comes to Peter after he's denied him, fulfilled Jesus' prophecy. Jesus knew it with a certainty. He didn't say, you might deny me. He said, you will deny me. We know the story of how when Jesus is at the courtyard of Caiaphas and he is enduring the punch in the face, the slap, the spit, it's just heating up hotter and hotter. They're screaming, crucify him. And Peter's standing out in the courtyard and he's warming himself. There's something about that. It's so much like their God is ice cold, amen, on an ice pick standing with no one around him, nobody to support him, nobody to testify for him, nobody to defend him, and Peter's warming himself by the fire, amen, and he denies it those three times. He says that Jesus turned and looked at Peter, and there's something in me that wants to say, you know Jesus was turning and looking at him to say, I told you so. I don't think that's what he was doing. I think he was trying to say to Peter, Peter, 
Peter was the closest one to him. Everybody else had gone further. And he was trying to say to Peter, Peter, I know, but I knew beforehand. This hasn't derailed me. I knew this. Peter was derailed. He was hopeless again. But Jesus was penetrating the distance and saying, Peter, I knew this. Amen. This isn't surprising, God. Amen. Amen. I told you so, but that's not to hurt you. That's to say, this isn't, this isn't upsetting my plans. Amen. I, didn't, I wasn't having better expectations of the flesh. Amen. And when he comes to Peter afterwards, he doesn't say much again. He just says, do you love me? Peter was teetering. Amen. He was right on the edge of despair. He had already said, depart from me, for I am a sinner, and gone back to the boat. He had already given up the fishing for men. So Jesus says to him, do you love me? And he says, I follow you. I have feeling for you. He says, do you love me? He says, I have affection for you. And in between every time, he says, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Why do you think he was doing that? You see, he wasn't just there to rub Peter's nose in the dirt and say, you failed. He was being very careful because he knew Peter was teetering between despair and faith. And he knew that if Peter just got focused on just his failure, he was going to sink. Just like he did when he started walking on that water. You remember? He said, Peter, why did you doubt? The Lord knows Peter's heart. Just like he knows our heart. And I can see Peter every time the Lord says, Peter, do you love me? I can just see Peter starting to sink. The waves. Oh God, I failed again. Oh God, how can I, how can I face it? Those keys to the kingdom are heavy in my pocket. They're only sinking me below right now. And the Lord's watching Peter. He's right there. Peter, do you love me? There's no false denial. He says, I have affection. Amen. And the Lord says, feed my sheep. He's like, you got a purpose for my life? Amen. Then he asks the bad question again. He says, do you love me? I, I feel like, feed my sheep. Oh, yeah, amen. He comes back above the surface. Amen. The Lord's trying to keep this balance. Amen. Forgive us our debts as we find opportunity to forgive debtors. As we find the sheep who need feed. Amen. Even the little that may be left in our hearts that we haven't denied or betrayed. Amen. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. When you are converted, Peter, the last thing he told him before the trial, not after, but before the trial, is he said, you're going to deny me. But he was already telling Peter, but you're going to come through. Amen. It's not going to surprise me. It's not going to make me fail, God, when I turn and hear your denial. I've, I'll have understood it ahead of time. But I, I want you to look ahead already. When you are converted, turn and strengthen your brothers. Amen. When you're in that place of abject disappointment, look up. Then know that God has a purpose for your life. Amen. And just as much as you need fellowship, they need what you've got to. You need each other. You need the other 11. And they need you. Don't be discouraged. Amen. Be gracious to me, O oh God, according to your loving kindness. 
according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He scrubs us clean with the abrasion of iron sharpening iron through the application of the washing word. And cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I don't forget what manner of man I am but it's not my idol either. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when? When you speak. When the word of correction comes, you're right. I'm telling you ahead of time, God, I'm going to accept it. I'm going to accept it. I'm going to swallow that tonic. I'm going to drink down that antidote because I know I'm diseased. Amen. You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost part. Not in the words, Peter. Not in the externalities, amen. But from the abundance of the heart. You want to penetrate to the very core and deposit your truth there. You want to plant your seed there. Amen. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost part. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Be my sheep. Can you strengthen your brothers? Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. What does that mean? He says, God, you turn your back on my sin just like I'm turning it on it. Turn your face from who I've been. Amen. And send me on in the path of your command. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God. I know that Peter's heart wasn't very strong, but it was a clean heart. Amen. It was not crusted and, and scabbed with the deceptiveness of self-power. Amen. It was clean. It was scrubbed raw. Amen. And it was weak. It had to be helped. Amen. But it was clean. Created me a clean heart, O oh God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Amen. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let me feel the thrill, the pulsing energy of faith in knowing that my life is in your hands. That I am walking in slavery obedience to your commands. Amen. Let me feel that joy that I'm living for God again. That love owns me. That the Spirit possesses me. That Christ is ahead of me. Even if the cross be in between he and I. Amen. Restore me to the joy of your salvation. 
Sustain me with what? With a willing spirit. Then, then, I will feed your sheep. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. And sinners will be converted to you. He's going to rise up. Amen. With that feeling of unworthiness and forgiveness. Amen. That trust, that unmerited mercy and grace. Try me, Lord. If you think there's a way, I can try to repay all I've taken from you. Just maybe, Lord, I could show someone else what I've been through myself on my way back to you. That's how God redeems the lost years. He makes them meaningful when you can teach them to others in the light of the promise that has been fulfilled in your life. Amen. Restore the years that the canker worm has eaten. You'll be able to stand up one day before kings and multitudes and say, I once persecuted the cross of Christ. I once enslaved and imprisoned Christians. But there was a day on the road to Damascus when God met me. Amen. And when I rose up out of my self-righteousness, humbled and crushed in repentance, I went straight away into the calling of God for my life. Amen. Because I had to find some sheep to feed. I had to find some brothers to strengthen. Amen. Hallelujah.